Hello, and welcome to another episode of One Step Ahead. Uh, it's Mike Wheeler here. And Kim Leary. Good morning, Mike. Good morning, indeed. It was kind of rainy last night, and it cleared crisp and cool on this fall morning. It's finally feeling like fall. I know everybody is super busy in the midst of school and work, so it's really great to have a moment today to kind of step back and think so that we can move one step ahead. And if people are interested in One Step Ahead, one way they can find out about more episodes and also about other work that we're doing on agile negotiation and adaptive leadership is to check out our website. It's Negotiation 360. The easy way to find it is just key in N for negotiation, the digits 360.expert. We hope the expert makes that memorable, negotiation360.expert. Today we're going to talk about an expert in terms of what's happening in online negotiations, if you will, sometimes implicit ones. Uh, my colleague Mike Luca is going to come over from the negotiation organization and markets group, and he's going to talk to us about research that he and Ben Edelman did on Airbnb. It's really terrific stuff and raises such incredible and important questions about trust in this age of online transactions. Well, let's invite Mike in. So, Kim, we're lucky today. This is um, lucky for me because I get to see Mike Luca, my colleague, and Kim, you just met Mike. So uh, I feel as if, you know, I've expanded your circle just a little bit. And I feel lucky, too. Welcome, Mike. Uh, thanks for having me. So the, the Mike who is not speaking right now is Mike Luca, who's on the faculty at the Harvard Business School. In my department, Negotiation Organizations and Markets, which if you come to think of it, Mike, is everything. You're an economist by training. Can you say a little bit about what you did in your thesis? Yeah, yeah so I'm an economist. I study the economics of digitization. The questions that I'm interested in really are about decision making in the internet age. So I've been fascinated for several years now about uh, how people are finding information online, how they're using it, and then how platforms are changing their design to help guide people's decisions. Well, you and I are going to get together this afternoon because I've got this big conference coming up um, in the spring and hope you can help me shape it on AI technology and negotiation. But I wonder if we can go back uh, to what you were saying at the outset, thinking about platforms and so forth and how we engage digitally. I know you did a fair amount of research on Airbnb. Can you tell Kim and me about that? Yeah, so this is a stream of research I've been thinking about for a long time now. Actually, it was my first year as a faculty member at HBS. I wrote a case study on Airbnb. And at the time, I was struck by by Airbnb's ability to create a platform that would allow somebody to rent their place out to complete strangers and for both sides of the market to trust that transaction to work. Right. So in some ways, it's sort of miraculous that you can never meet somebody and you could kind of go to their house and stay there and that everybody's going to know that money is going to change hands at the end and that uh, nothing is going to break, or at least hopefully nothing's going to break. The trust, the trust thing is interesting, and I see Kim's ready to jump in on that as well, because it's trust on both sides, right? It's so that if you're the one who's renting, the, the place is actually going to be as nice as is advertised 
And as you said, if you're the renter, you want to know the place isn't going to get trashed. That's exactly right. And actually, Airbnb plays an interesting role in all of this. So if you think about kind of the evolution of short run stays, think about people have been staying in hotels, obviously, for a long time. And think about the difference between going to a Marriott and going to an Airbnb. It used to be kind of you would trust Marriott because Marriott has a brand and that's how you know that you're what you're going to get. And over time, uh, Airbnb has taken a little bit of this role of helping to facilitate trust and transactions. So at the time, we have been thinking about uh, things like reviews on the platform, verification of the listings, making sure that the guests are who they say they are. And these are things that Airbnb have been doing. And it occurred to me, and I should say this is with a collaborator, uh, Ben Edelman, what we had been thinking about at the time is how dramatically the internet has changed in just a few years. And the thing that has struck us is that it's not just one static set of choices that platforms are making, uh, but they're constantly thinking about what's the right way to facilitate decisions. Now, the element that we got interested in is uh, anonymity on the internet. And kind of one thing that really struck us about Airbnb is that they took away a lot of the anonymity that's there and a lot of transactions. So it's, it's interesting. Your field, uh, Kim, is adaptive leadership. A company like Airbnb is learning as it goes and grows. Very much. And I'm also struck by the way in which you're talking about old-fashioned trust, but in a new cutting-edge way by thinking about trust on platforms. Is it the same kind of trust, Mike? So... At some level, you're trying to kind of create that. Now, what I would say is that platforms have very deep ways of building trust, like trying to make sure that they have a lot of credibility, trying to make sure that these are really safe transactions. But there are also kind of cheaper ways to build trust. And I think kind of one one area where some platforms had gone wrong early on is thinking, okay, let me just reduce the perceived social distance between two people, get rid of the anonymity, then you'll know who you're staying with. And while this could create a sense of trust, it could also have a lot of unintended consequences, and that's kind of the part that we got in, interested in. We're talking two levels here. I want to keep my head straight. One is, if you will, the micro transaction between the renter and the owner, and then there's the macro uh, setup of the platform and, and the design. Totally. It's basically, can you trust Airbnb, and can you trust the person that you're renting to or renting from on Airbnb? So what did you look at and what did you discover? Well, I'll start with a little bit of the background on how we got started on this. Essentially, we started thinking about some of the old platforms, the original platforms that had come up on the internet, uh, old, relatively speaking. So, <laughs> Well, wait a second. You were, you were looking at me when you said that old, relatively speaking, not as old as you, Mike, but, <laughs> but old in internet time. So we, I don't know if I'd go that far. but the, um, So we have been thinking about uh, platforms like eBay and Amazon, which started in the mid-1990s. And on those platforms, essentially, part of what's beautiful about them is that you, they facilitate these transactions that are essentially arm's length. You go on, you could buy a used espresso maker from somebody who's sitting in Berkeley and have it delivered to Cambridge. And you kind of know what you're going to get and know that it's going to get there. The thing that has really changed over time is if you kind of look at the uh, Amazon, eBay-style platforms, and then Hotels.com and Expedia and that round of platforms, there was a shift when we started seeing platforms like Airbnb come about that said, we're not just going to tell you about the thing you're purchasing. We're going to build trust with reviews, but we're also going to take away a lot of those 
arm's length transactions and make sure that you sort of know the person that you'll be staying with before you decide whether or not to stay with them. And importantly for the research that we ended up doing is telling hosts on Airbnb that you should look at the person that's going to stay with you and decide, is this a person that I want to rent out to or not? So you actually see a a picture of the uh, person uh, in the site. But can we go back just a step? There still is a trust problem when you're buying the espresso maker or you've given the example of a baseball card and uh, its its condition. I know that... um, that eBay in particular has a dispute resolution system that is online, and I know Colin Rule, who helped develop that, will get him on at some some point. It's not as if this is a night and day kind of comparison, but the trust problem is especially clear where you're going to be engaging with with the other person in the transaction as opposed to it's a product and it's good. If it's not, you make a complaint and you go from there. You're going to live with this. Yeah, so I would say it's not night and day, kind of actually stepping back a little bit and saying kind of there are implications of the design choices eBay and Amazon made and Expedia made. And actually there have been some, so I could talk about both of these. Go. (laughs) So maybe we'll kind of get into, like maybe I'll give a little bit of the landscape of things. There is a lot that eBay does to sort of build trust and facilitate transactions. Some of it they've struggled with, some of it they've done well. Um, So they have dispute resolution. They also have a review system. But I would say that there have been uh, several points of time at which I've really felt like the review ecosystem on eBay has been broken Mm -hmm. and actually uh, broken because people would leave a review when they had a good experience, but not leave a review uh, if they had a bad experience. And there was actually a fascinating paper that somebody had written looking at what people do in good and bad experiences. So eBay has a research team. And what they had shown is that after a bad experience, you may register a complaint with eBay, but when you register a complaint, you're less likely to leave a review. So what they've actually found over time is that part of the signals they want to be extracting are not just from the reviews and experiences people say that they're having publicly, but also trying to bake in some information about complaints that they've had. So I'm fascinated by this, but I also uh, think we've taken you away from Airbnb. Sure. So the Airbnb story essentially kind of started with thinking about this evolution of anonymity on the internet. And we started off thinking about these arm's length transactions. And it turns out uh, not only did having online platforms kind of promise to have more efficiency on the internet, it also kind of had a second implication, which is that early on, people thought this is going to create a fairer ecosystem as well. And the rationale was essentially, okay, we live in a world in which there is discrimination. And if you take away some of the markers that people are using to discriminate against people, uh, you could reduce the amount of discrimination that are happening in a marketplace. So I wanted to go back to, with Airbnb, you said there's a reduction of the arm's length. And in fact, that people share their photos, right? It seems like that would be a place where some of that mischief might creep in. Yeah, and that's exactly kind of what got us interested in this research agenda. So at the time, um, we initially were just thinking about what are they doing to build trust? And when we saw this, uh, that some of the things they were doing is kind of putting photos, putting names, and making this a big part uh, of the decision process, and simultaneously giving more discretion to landlords about who to reject and who to accept. So kind of if you think about on Expedia, you just kind of go check if there's availability, book the place. On Airbnb, you go, you see if there's availability. And um, especially at the time, hosts had a lot of discretion about whether or not you should be able to stay at the place. Um, we So 
Ben and I had run this audit study then where essentially we said, well, let's test and see kind of if discrimination is an issue on the platform. So we had sent out about 6,400 applications to stay with hosts and we had varied the names and used names that were mm. either statistically indicative, um, statistically more likely to be African-American or statistically more likely to be white. And then we use that to measure differences in rejection rates across like the two sets of guests. And what did you find? So what we found is that African-American guests were about 16% more likely to get rejected relative to white guests with exactly the same message being sent to hosts. So the big data is really allowing you and us to see some of those patterns that many people believe are out there, but now we can verify. So it's something that we sort of suspected. It was something that Airbnb had actively denied in a number of instances. So they had kind of said um, they had representatives who were saying, I can assure you there's no discrimination on the platform. I think even though after the fact, it's perhaps unsurprising that there was this extent of discrimination. I think what it was, what it allowed us to do is to get a glimpse of what the marketplace looked like, what the problem was, where it was happening, and all kind of have the same set of starting facts about uh, the extent prevalence and situations in which uh, discrimination was occurring on the platform. So the data was really allowing you to have a much better and more sophisticated diagnostic it was very helpful for that. And when we think about what the landscape of stakeholders were in this, so there were guests who just wanted to be able to rent places, right? So this is a landscape where decades of regulation has helped to reduce discrimination in hotels. I mean, it wasn't that long ago when this was a widespread problem in hotels as well. That's right. A second set of stakeholders were uh, actually employees at Airbnb. So now this is a company uh, that kind of has the mission to that people should be able to belong anywhere. So I think that in the tech sector, there are a lot of people who really believe in the product they're making. So they didn't want to be contributing to, or at least many of the employees felt uncomfortable contributing to a product where there was discrimination. Then a third set of stakeholders was the host who some of whom may have wanted this extra flexibility about being able to reject people. And a fourth set were policymakers. And all of these kind of uh, parties kind of came together in different ways, trying to understand the landscape and how to move forward. I'm assuming that an important part of the discrimination that your algorithm revealed was implicit, that the host didn't necessarily intend to discriminate, but were despite their understanding of their own behavior. So it's, it's quite possible. So there's certainly evidence that a lot of discrimination is implicit and that even well-intentioned people who don't want to discriminate still end up discriminating in practice. Uh, so actually, um, one of the things that Airbnb did afterwards is tried to create an implicit bias uh, training that they kind of gave out to people or at least allowed people to uh, sign up for. Maybe I could give a little bit of the landscape of kind of how we move forward. So we had this initial set of facts and then we started thinking about, well, how should policy makers think about this? How should guests be thinking about this? How should hosts be thinking about this? Yeah, and the we is you and Ben Adelman on this project. There's the larger we when you describe uh, all the stakeholders and so forth. So what ensued? So we started thinking about kind of the types of heterogeneity in the results. And what we, one discussion point that had come up frequently is, is this just individual hosts who kind of have one room that they're renting out? And we're not condoning discrimination in that situation, but there's a legal distinction 
uh, between discrimination of smaller hosts and larger hosts. So some of the larger hosts would be subject to just regular regular regulation that any hotel or bed and breakfast would be subject to. But there's a different set of rules and regulations if you're renting out a, a room in your own home. Is that right? So there's a different set of rules depending on the number of units that you're renting out. If you were a, a woman who has an apartment and you want to rent out a room, I could imagine that some women would have uh, sort of a fundamental notion, I'm not sure I want to get a man in, in my place. So were you looking at any kind of gender issues? Or, of course, you had just hypothetical renters, right, in terms of the... the so, they, so our renters had gender <laughs> So um, we had names that were male names, female names. And, I see. Yeah, so then, then, so we varied by race and by gender. Now we saw discrimination across the board. There was discrimination both against African-American males and African-American females. So it didn't seem to be that gender was the predominant thing that was driving our effect. I would also say that we saw this effect even for people who are renting out their entire place, even for people who have multiple units, even for people who had experience on the platform. So this didn't seem like a small renter phenomenon. So I think sometimes people think, oh, uh, well, you're renting out this room in your place and kind of either for legal reasons or their own um, ethical uh, distinctions that they're drawing will kind of say, well, it's okay in one situation, but not in the other. But we're that's, not seeing that it occurs. In that's one interesting. Not the other. It's, it's in both cases. But I may have taken you off a little bit where you were talking about the response um, at Airbnb in terms of what they could do about it. Yeah, so once we had this set of results, we started kind of um, thinking about what are some types of solutions that you could draw. So I could ask you, though, when you provided that information to Airbnb, where an assumption of discretion now could be quantified as discrimination and where they hadn't anticipated it, what was it like for them to receive the results of your experiment? So it's an interesting set of discussions that we had had. So we had some data that was non-experimental beforehand and we had shared with them and they didn't really do much with it. And I think at that point they kind of said we could either do further testing or just continue to gloss over the issue. And I think uh, initially they had just kind of glossed over the issue and hoped that you know, this wouldn't really come up as a major policy discussion. After we had the results, I think kind of as regulators started getting involved and as customers started um, wanting to see changes on the platform, I think they realized that this is an issue that they needed to grapple with. Um, when we released the results, so we had posted the working paper the way you would for any paper, uh, but kind of it had caught the attention of some media and some regulators. And um, I very quickly got a call from someone at Airbnb who was their head economist at the time who then flew to Boston, came over. We ordered pizza from T. Anthony's. I don't know if you've <laughs> yes, ever been there. Yes, I do know T. Anthony's. I love T. Anthony's. It's, it's just up the street from the BU hockey rink. When I, I've been to a lot of games there, Michael. Exactly. So. So I went to BU, so this was our haunt when we were uh, students. A little well. T. Anthony plug. We'll leave that in. Yeah. <laughs> um, so we ordered pizza. We sat down. We said, kind of, what are, what are the things that you could do uh, to fix a problem? And uh, the details of the discussion are off the record, but kind of in broad strokes, we were thinking about, um, you know, are there ways that Airbnb could kind of systematically reduce discrimination uh, without, and I think kind of one of the things that they have uh, that's top of mind is without slowing the growth that they were so excited about. 
So that gets us into the territory of what it means to exercise leadership, to take in information that may be contrary to what you hoped or believed or expected, and then have to adjust to that reality. You're also talking about the way in which, because of the employees who work for Airbnb, that they saw themselves as having a unique opportunity to, to kind of respond to something uh, as challenging as this. Can, can you tell us more about the leadership uh, goals when you present information like this to a client? So it's such an interesting, so I should say Airbnb is not a client. Okay. Um, so like, this was purely a research paper and my interest in engaging with them afterwards was purely in trying to reduce discrimination on the platform. Um, now I will say that then they went out and said kind of what should we do and we initially had like a set of conversations. Ray Fishman and I had partnered up to kind of think about what some solutions might be, some managerial solutions. And we talked about things like reducing discretion for hosts, so kind of trying to have more of a feature that they call instant booking, so where it looks a lot more like Expedia. We talked about uh, reducing or eliminating pictures and names to the extent possible until after a place is booked. We talked about having more public reporting of data, um, and we had given all these suggestions to Airbnb. I had several suggestions or several conversations with people uh, ranging from like their engineering team to their executive team um, to their legal and PR team. <laughs> um, and I think kind of they all had different uh, thoughts on how to best proceed. And ultimately, and I think this is kind of where the leadership question comes in. So they had this information and they sort of took a while to process it and started reaching out to think um, who might they want to engage. And ultimately they did put together a task force um, where they were given our results, other internal data, our recommendations, other recommendations they started doing. The task force included um, Eric Holder um, and a series of people from kind of various areas of the civil rights movement trying to think about like what would they recommend. So the, the leadership was around transformations within the firm, but then importantly, the stance that they're taking publicly on other platforms where people are discussing such matters. And it becomes a, a way in which this firm has the potential to lead in this space. So they had a real opportunity in some ways, right? So it was a real challenge and a real opportunity. Now, they essentially, if you think about the leadership challenge, it's sort of, um, it's fascinating to think that like kind of here are executives thinking about how much growth are we willing to uh, give up to get rid of discrimination on yes. the platform? Yes, yes, the trade-offs that one needs to make in order to make progress on the larger question. Right. And that they were literally then having to think about, let's run a series of internal experiments to see, should we make this change or that change? And then saying, oh, this one will reduce discrimination by X percent, but it'll reduce growth by Y percent. I want to hop in here. We just have a couple of minutes left. Um, I hope we can get you back at some point to talk more broadly about experiments. I know you've got a book coming out from MIT Press. It's interesting to me what you said a little while ago where they had some data uh, from their own experience, but for some reason or other, actually seeing well-crafted research gave them more of a nudge in terms of this was a problem uh, to be solved. Did you anticipate that, you and Ben, that when you undertook this research that it would have quite the impact that it has? So it's hard to kind of imagine how the research would unfold and how the practice would change, actually. Um, so um, it's 
it's a frustrating issue to see discrimination in a marketplace, right? So in some ways, it, it was research that we were excited to do because we thought it was an important issue, but also frustrated and sad to see that there's this discrimination and sad to see that kind of discrimination persists. Where we've seen kind of silver linings and seen some progress in the broader community is Airbnb did start a team, a team that just is focused on basically doing versions of what we were doing, looking at discrimination and trying to test different ways to get rid of it. So I think we've seen more attention within policy communities. So the Congressional Black Caucus had uh, cited our recommendations and said, okay, we, we would urge Airbnb to move forward and implement some of these changes. So I think that awareness has changed, I think platforms are starting to think more toward equity. And if I had to generalize this out, what I would say is that one challenge that platforms face is that it's often tempting to kind of get narrowly caught up in growth. So think about uh, how many users am I going to have? How much money am I going to make? And that could sometimes be a myopic way to think about a business ecosystem and a myopic way to think about leadership. And I think kind of the broader change that we're hoping to have is just to have leaders be a little bit more thoughtful about what's the broader set of outcomes that we care about. Efficiency, equity, whatever other metrics of fairness they might care about. I think, how are we moving all the needle on, on all of those and to track them, report on them, be transparent about them, have honest internal and external discussions with the hope that you're going to lead to a world where your platform really is making the world a better place. So, so Kim, uh, we got to get him back, right? I Absolutely. Mean, any last comments on this, Kim? I think this is just fascinating to think about the signaling function that for other firms, other platforms, and also this really critical part of leadership, which is tough trade-offs that you have to make in order to make progress on a whole range of issues and not only just the growth of the firm. So, Mike, thanks a lot. And, Kim, to be continued. Absolutely. Thank you so much, Mike. Thank you. Let's remind people about how they can chat with us and with their fellow listeners on our Negotiation 360 website. Well, it's not just the chat that they can have with us and other listeners, but there are other resources uh, on the site. Um, You can find my Negotiation 360 self-assessment and best practice app. There are links to online courses, and we're putting up articles that you and I have written together and maybe some others as well. So there's lots of stuff on agile negotiation and adaptive leadership. Much of it is free. We've even simplified the URL for podcast listeners. Here's how to find us. Just key in the letter N, as in negotiation, and the numbers 360.expert. That's n360.expert, and you'll find us.